am Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist. And this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness in the simplest of terms. Join me for 30 minutes of expert advice, simple science, and practical knowledge. Please be aware that some episodes may feature triggering topics about trauma, suicide, and self-harm. If you feel triggered by some of this content, please seek help and support immediately. The show notes contain a list of helpful support organizations in the UK. Today we're talking about anxiety in children and young people. It is such a common problem and such a common complaint that I think out of 10 patients I'm going to see in my clinic, maybe more than half of them are going to tell me they're here to see me because they're feeling anxious. Or maybe the parents are going to tell me that they've been noticing that their child is very anxious and very worried all the time. So let's talk about what anxiety looks like in children and young people. Let's talk about when it is considered a problem compared to anxiety that we all experience, including me now sitting and talking to you. And let's talk about what investigations we do for anxiety in children and young people and how we assess anxiety in children and young people. I'm going to make an honorable mention as well for um, of treatments that are out there for, for anxiety. So let's start. Let's talk about what anxiety uh, looks like in children, young people. It can be a lot of things. But before I go into detail, I'm going to tell you that anxiety, as in the feeling of being nervous or scared, is a normal state of mind. There is a point at which we say that, okay, this is unusual or this is not um, normal. There's a fancy word for this that we say dysfunctional or maladaptive, which is technical for um, anxiety has gone above a certain limit where it has overtaken other ranges of emotion that a person would experience. And that includes a child. And the other thing that I want to tell you about anxiety is that it's like a cough. In and of itself, a cough can be that, you know, you just maybe choked on a sip of water, or it can mean something much more sinister. So the same way that we assess for a cough, we assess anxiety as a just really in-depth, we just look at it as a symptom that reflects something behind it. So we don't really take it for face value. So what are the different symptoms out there of anxiety? I'm going to talk to you a little bit about generalized anxiety. This is jargon, so I'm going to walk through each of them. I'm going to talk about selective mutism, phobias, panic disorders. I'm going to talk about social anxiety and agoraphobia. And I'm going to tell you what we look at when we're thinking about all of these things. So let's start with generalized anxiety. And this is one of the most common reports that we get in from, from children, young people. I feel, and this is reductive, but I'm going to give it a shot. I feel anxious all the time, regardless of what is going on. And to understand this feeling, you have to understand what anxiety represents because anxiety or fear has a functional role. It has a good role. Your brain has a part of it dedicated to keeping you alive keeping you safe. And that part of your brain lights up when you're in danger, 
when you're crossing the road and there's a car coming at a distance, when you're in an interaction with a person and the person is giving you signals that they might be hostile towards you. And it lights up when you're in an environment where you feel cornered or you feel that you're unsafe. So this part of the brain is really good and it develops in children. So if you think about how children behave when they're really little, they have a very limited sense of danger that normally develops as they grow. So a three-year-old would be more than happy talking to strangers, touching random things, pulling brambles into their mouth. And it's, it is beautiful to see that sense of trust in the world. But also it is important to understand that this part of their brain is still developing. And as they develop normally, that sense of danger develops. So at a certain point, children will become Overworried, so they'll become overworried uh, uh, about, for example, darkness. They'll be overworried about certain things. So some kids will be worried about um, going to school or meeting new people, and that is to 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 again reduce it a little bit. That is their brain stabilizing, balancing out. So that part of the brain that develops should develop ideally into a healthy space where it's able to take calculated risks. It tells you to take calculated risks and it signals you when you're in danger. This part of your brain develops and as it develops it develops from nothing, trusting the world and everything in it completely without condition to a part where it goes the other way, where it's afraid of everything. And then it kind of balances out at some point. And the idea in children who develop um, anxiety is that this part of the brain seems to, for some reason, become really hypersensitive, really hyperactive, glowing up when it shouldn't be, giving them a signal of danger when there is none. And thereby, affecting how they behave and react to the world. And the idea in children is to try always to take that developmental age, which is basically what people, what kids their age might be expected to fear or how they would behave in a similar situation into consideration. So for example, a fear of the dark is absolutely okay if you're four. It's not okay if you're 14. Um, talking to people might be a very difficult thing if you're two or three. Meeting new people should be slightly a little bit easier when you're 13 or 14. So this is a, a very graphic example of, of what we consider. But you also consider the, the environment in which a person grew up. So to also make a graphic example, it is a very different situation if a child is afraid of, of strangers or talking to strangers when they've grown up in an environment where strangers have inflicted harm on them or on someone they love. So having a very negative experience of strangers, like we see that in children who've survived massive traumas or have come from war zones or have encountered, you know, uh, attacks on them or on their family. That is a very different uh, context to 
a similar child of a similar age experiencing a very strong fear of, of strangers when they haven't gone through that. And to add to that, it is a very different story if a child is afraid of strangers, but has a diagnosis of ASD. So I'm going to put a pin in that, but I'm just wanting to make an alert here about ASD and ADHD and learning difficulties and learning disabilities because they, kids who have this diversity experience the world through a very different lens. So their experience of anxiety is assessed in a very different way. So to summarize this, context is everything. When it comes to anxiety, environmental context, personal context, and also it's important to think about that part of the brain as in the brain, you know, it's the brain, it's attached to your neck, attached to your body. So what is going on with your body is bound to affect your experience. So I'm going to tell you in a minute about how we assess anxiety, but one of them is we do tests especially in children and young people, because things can go wrong and anxiety can show up as a symptom of that. Sometimes anxiety can be generalized. So across situations happening all the time without condition. So at school, I'm feeling very anxious. It's really affecting how um, I'm carrying myself at school, at home, on the street, I'm finding it very hard to focus because I feel like I'm in danger all the time. And I'm, I'm saying this in a very narrative way, but actually in clinic, I don't think I've met a child yet who is able to articulate anxiety in such clear words because anxiety in itself is a feeling that strips you of your ability to focus enough to put your feelings into words. This is, again, a note. So children will not come out and tell you, you know, I'm feeling anxious. I'm, I'm experiencing this, this and that in those places that never, almost never happens. But in a, the gist of it is that, you know, I'm experiencing anxiety all the time. And, the, you know, the, it's exactly like it says on the 10, generalized anxiety. And then you come to something called selective mutism. Again, that's a very symptomatic diagnosis. So selective mutism is where children who are normally able to communicate verbally, so talk, normally able to use language to talk and understand others, struggle to talk in certain situations, despite being generally able to communicate in others. And the other one is specific phobias. So people who are afraid of certain things, a very common one is needles and blood. And another one is social anxiety. Again, that's one of those things that I hear a lot being used as, um, you know, a general term, but actually it's exactly like your normal anxiety. It's a cough in itself. It might be a diagnosis, but most of the time it just represents a lot of other things. So social anxiety is where a person who um, does not normally experience anxiety in other situations would experience very strong anxiety in social situations. And it might lead to them thinking about, you know, people watching them closely when they really aren't or fearing that they might offend someone or come off as looking silly or, or looking like they don't know what they're doing. 
Social anxiety can also be experienced as a constant way of relating to others where all your relationships are colored with a degree of anxiety. If ever you're in a group more than one, you're going to feel very socially anxious. And this is why, and in those situations, you can't call that social anxiety because it's a state of, of how you relate to others. It's not something that pops up out of the blue. And that's the third law. So we've talked about three laws of anxiety. It It's like a cough. It can mean anything looks very different for children, young people. Most of them will not tell you exactly what they're feeling. And the third rule is that anxiety can be a state of relating to the world. It has to be seen as a disorder. It has to have a beginning, a very clear beginning before which you haven't experienced anxiety like that. And the reason why I'm saying this is that anxiety can be a, a normal state of mind that matches the situation, but also can be a temperament. And I'm going to put a pin in that. And I'm going to talk about it in a minute as well. So before I move on to how we assess anxiety and talk about neurodiversity and talk about temperament, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what anxiety looks like in children and young people. And I said that children and young people, even very articulate young people, struggle to describe their subjective experience when it comes to anxiety and that's part of how anxiety works as it strips you of your ability to gather your thoughts and put them into words so a lot of um, trying to understand a young person's experience of anxiety is to do with gathering clues a common one in little children, so I'm thinking about less than 10 years old, maybe. A common one is school refusal. So refusing to go to school. School is one of the most stressful situations that children go through. Most children, some children's school is amazing, but for most children, school is like you know, nine to five for most of us, it's stressful. You have to put on a face, you have to dress up, you have to keep on top of your work and you have to sit still and be quiet. So regardless of whether your child has ADHD or ASD or is neurodiverse or neurotypical, I don't care. Sitting down is hard for 45 minutes, trying to listen, not talk to your neighbor. It is hard and stressful. And you have to realistically be called upon at any minute and dependent on, on what kind of teacher you've got, what kind of format your school is set up. Most schools are set up in primary as in a teacher-led model where there is a bit of a distance. Some schools are actually more collaborative where children are in like small groups. Again, it's a very demanding place to be and it requires a lot of discipline. And this discipline comes with anxiety. I mean, you have to um, have a degree of um, adrenaline, you know, being pumped in your body, a degree of anxiety to be able to work. So what often happens is that kids stop wanting to go to school. And the other common one is 
um, when kids talk about certain physical ailments, stomach aches is a very common one. And you have to think about um, stomach aches and physical symptoms because sometimes they are real. They are very real. Their body, I mean, your body tells the story, literally. If you're struggling on a mental level, even as a grown-up, by the way, if you're struggling on a mental level and you're struggling to find the words to articulate this, your body's going to tell your story, whether you like it or not. It's going to hurt and it's gonna, you're going to have symptoms and experience difficulty. Children are exactly the same. Sometimes children um, have to fake illnesses and it's their way of avoiding confrontation. So think about refusing school and think about if kids tell you, well, I'm not going to school today. It's likely in this day and age where you have a job, in a lot of countries you get fined if your children don't attend school uh, for a certain amount of days. There's a lot of pressure on families uh, for attendance. Most parents are going to be very stressed about it. And even if they're not stressed, your first instinct is, are you sure? Are you sure you're not going to school? Why not? Tell me about it. And Tell me about it might be a lovely comeback for someone in their 30s who is able to talk about their feelings openly. But for children, tell me about it is again another demand. Tell me about it. Put it in words. That's very hard to do, especially when you're under 10. So physical ailments can be faked, but also can happen for real. And it's a way for children to try and reduce the demand on on themselves. I, I really hate the term school refusal. Because it, it, it kind of implies a degree of uh, choice where the child chooses not to go. And you wouldn't say that about a grown-up who's calling in sick. You wouldn't say work refusal. You'd just say, well, they're not well. And, um, you know, right now we're talking about mental health days where, um, and, you know, even before mental health days came up, anxiety is a good reason why you shouldn't show up to work on a day. You know, it's a good sick leave call. So. The same goes for children. Let's talk about above 10. And this is not a very clear demarcation. So you can have both in, in both age groups. But most of the time above 10, the complaint is that they're very withdrawn. And when they're not withdrawn, they're very angry. Anger is the one of the most important modes of communication. And if you have a teenager stomping about the house, if you're someone in your teens listening to this, you've probably felt that avalanche of anger, an absolute tsunami of rage flowing through your body. And a lot of the time, it is just... Um, paralyzing. And I tell this to my patient, anger is not an emotion. Anger is a mask that we wear on top of a real emotion. Emotions can be happy, sad, or scared. And a lot of the time, what anger is masking is anxiety. It is much easier to protect myself when I'm angry. It's much easier to tell people to go away, leave me alone if I'm angry. Sometimes kids, without really meaning to do so, but they find it a very positive outcome of being angry or irritable or off with their teacher to be kicked out of class. So let's talk about how we assess. So the first step in assessing 
anxiety is to hear this objective story, hear what you have to say as the young person or the child. With children under 10, sometimes communication can include playing. A lot of what we do with children under 10 is play. And trying to get either a language or a verbal conversation going, or sometimes we try to see how people play. We look at how they relate to their parents. So there is a disorder called separation anxiety, but really we look at separation anxiety all the time. And we look at how kids relate to their parents because, or their carers, because a parent or a carer is kind of your, your real life dummy or your real life comfort blanket. You give them comfort. And if it's really hard to get away from you for a period of time, then, and that shouldn't really happen for that age group, for example, then it tells you or it clues you into the degree of anxiety that this child is struggling with. So a lot of talking happens around anxiety. Sometimes it's very hard to get into the subjective experience, but we try. Sometimes we use scales. So scales is a way to, so it's like a checklist. Da, 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 da. There's a list of things and it's like a checklist and then people go through them. And these help us really to monitor rather than diagnose. Sometimes they help us to get a conversation going. So sometimes I use them to communicate with my patients if they don't want to talk a lot. So just, you know, make a do, 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 check it, check, 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 check. And then I go through it with them and see what, um, what was checked as, oh, this happens most of the time. And then we start a conversation with that. The second thing we talk about, we look at what is in the background. Is there neurodiversity? That's really massively important. And we're going to talk specifically about neurodiversity. We're going to talk about ASD. We're going to talk about ADHD. We're going to talk about learning difficulties and learning disabilities. But when I say neurodiversity, that's what I mean. I mean that children who are developed differently or people who are developed differently. And I mean ADHD, ASD, learning difficulties and learning disabilities. So it's important to check which developmental family or which developmental group we're looking at. It's important to know if this child is developing in a typical way. So what considerations we need to take. It's important to know what is going on at home, what their temperament is. So temperament is what you are born with. There's a lot of discussion about whether we're born anxious or we are born into anxious homes or anxious families. But regardless of that, one day we're going to talk about it, but regardless of that, some people are just warriors. And I hear that, you know, my child is a warrior. And actually, you look deeper into it, you find that actually the whole family are warriors. So this third thing, we do a lot of investigation. So sometimes we ask for blood tests. We ask for hormones like thyroid, um, which is the hormone that controls your metabolism, how your body metabolizes things and produces energy. Sometimes we look at general things like, you know, your stomach, your, your health. Thyroid is a very important one that we look at. If you're a, a female person, you know, um, then we think about periods, we think about how your anxiety level relate, levels relate to your cycle and, and whether that is within the normal expected or not. The, the most important thing is, is it affecting your functioning? So this is where I was telling you about what is normal anxiety? I mean, I'm anxious just talking to you right now, to be honest. And when is that abnormal? It becomes abnormal 
or an illness, if it affects my functioning, it stops me from doing what I want to do. And functioning has to be measured not in just one setting. So it has to happen across settings. So if I'm anxious about doing exams, that's all right. But if I'm anxious about doing exams and attending class, Nah, okay, then I'll look about I'll look at what's going on at school. If I'm anxious about doing that, but also I'm anxious about being at home around my siblings or around my parents. Mm, okay, nah, but also I'm anxious about going to birthday parties and I'm anxious about seeing my friends and I'm becoming withdrawn and I'm becoming irritable and I'm basically blowing up my life either by being angry or just refusing to engage in it then functioning is impaired. It's very important when we're assessing anxiety to talk to families. So we call it collateral history. And if you've seen, if you're as old as I am, you've probably seen the movie Collateral Damage, but um, collateral means uh, parallel to. So, So information that is parallel to the information that we're getting from the person, from the patient. And it's really important to get that from the family or carers or people who live closely with the child because sometimes they'll be able to tell us things that maybe the child themselves is not able to articulate or is not aware of. So sometimes in panic disorders, for example, children might experience a sense of being almost dying or feeling stuck or feeling really unwell or feeling really struggling, but actually the parents are seeing, you know, a child who is just a little bit irritable or the opposite. Maybe the child is just completely writing it off, but the parents are seeing a child who's, you know, practically looks like they're having a heart attack. Uh, sometimes in social anxiety, people talk about feeling that, like they're red in the face. They're very inconfident. They stutter. But actually, when you talk to their families or talk to school, they're very, they appear very confident. They appear very um, engaged. And all of it is going on on the inside. So that's why it's really important to get information from school, from carers, from people around you who you give us permission to talk to. Now, let's talk about, make an honorable mention for treatments. Before I talk about treatments, it's important to talk about, does anxiety go away? Yes, anxiety does go away. But if you've experienced anxiety as a young child, it means that something really major has happened and has affected you. And the problem with experiencing anxiety as a child for any reason is that it gets a little bit built into your development. So some children might completely grow out of anxiety, never experience another bout. But some people might experience periods of anxiety, bouts of anxiety, relapses in the future depending on the triggers. And part of the treatment, one of the most important parts of the treatment is talking therapy. So engaging in psychotherapy, specifically CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and I've talked a bit in detail about this in the jargon busting episode, but CBT for anxiety, including working on where anxiety comes from in terms of your thoughts, your feelings. It also works on relapse prevention, on knowing what to do when anxiety hits again. Another 
kind of the dialect of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is called behavioral activation. That's basically just focusing on how to amend your behavior in ways that should reduce your anxiety a little bit. So um, making little goals of what to do. So it doesn't really address a lot of your thoughts and feelings, but more helps you regulate your schedule and set goals for yourself and meet them. So it's a very, it's a more simple way of addressing anxiety. And the other thing that we do is try to monitor things. Monitoring is the name of the game for children and young people. Because a lot of the time, what people present with, what children present with at the beginning doesn't turn out to be what they end up struggling with um, later on. So, so, like I said, you know, when I said in the beginning, people tell me anxiety is the main problem. But later on, I figure out, you know, well, it wasn't the main problem at all, actually. So anxiety can tell you a lot of what's happening in the background and the background might come more into focus with time. And a very good example of this is trauma. So anxiety, you know, when we said about parts of your brain that get really over-triggered, so children who'd gone through trauma, even if it's very small but repetitive traumas, so it doesn't have to be one event. So that's one kind of trauma. And we're going to talk about this in the trauma episode. But sometimes trauma is repeated and it can be um, emotional trauma. So feelings of neglect or, or witnessing domestic abuse or even domestic discord and, or fights like at home or arguments between parents can be considered traumatic. So and we have a fancy name for that called adverse childhood events. But, you know, anything that's really difficult that a child had to endure growing up. When these things happen, especially repetitively, it can trigger that part of your brain and make it overfire. And we see that. And there's a, there's a term that I heard from a colleague that says, you know, if you see anxiety, that's the branch of the tree, just find the roots. And it's really important to think about what anxiety represents. Is it a trauma? Is it a neurodiversity? What is going on in the background, like I said? So this is the function of monitoring. Now, the second part is medication. We don't generally tend to go to medication straight away with anxiety in children. Many reasons for that. I'm going to talk about it in the episode about medication. But the reason being is there's a degree of relentlessness and anxiety symptoms. They tend to remain for a period of time. So we and you don't want to be on anxiety medication for forever, right? You, the, the function of anxiety medication or medication generally is to support you for a certain amount of time unless it is directed at treating you for a long amount of time or it's directed at relapse prevention, so stopping this illness from returning. And that does happen for some young people. So sometimes we have young people who are on anxiety medication for a long period of time. That does happen, but that's not what most people will experience. Most uh, people will experience no medication and will just use therapy and improve on that. Some people will go through therapy with medication. If things are really difficult, medication can be a very good way to give you a stepping stone to make you more capable of functioning in therapy. Because a lot of therapy around anxiety is to do with exposure. So you, you work through it and then part of the work is 
exposing yourself on purpose to things that are anxiety provoking. And to be able to do that, you, ha- you, have to, you have to have a degree of capability to cope with anxiety. So sometimes medication gives us that leg up and just gives us that support. And there's a very limited number of, of medications that we use in children and young people. Namely, it's fluoxetine, sertraline, citalopram, escitalopram. Like, forget the names, forget the names, but they are called antidepressants. And in the episode about medication, I'm going to tell you that most medications are just named wrong. So antidepressants work for a lot of things, including anxiety. I've heard... Uh, the term anxiolytic medication before, but that's that's not a thing. Nothing is called anxiolytic medication. Um, there are some parts of the world that use medications that bring anxiety down, like Xanax or um, or other medications that are kind of make you mellow. And um, sometimes young people who are uh, exposed to drugs and street drugs can access these as a part of, you know, Again, they don't usually use the term, but it is self-medication. It's trying to cope with that with that feeling without going to a doctor. So it's called self-medication. Some parts of the world do use it. We don't use it for children, young people. We have a lot of things that do better. Um, at least here in the UK, we have a lot of things that do better than that. And the risk of addiction is very high because like I said, anxiety doesn't tend to completely go away. There, there's a little bit that stays. And if you get hooked on something to manage it in the moment, it's very difficult to um, kick that habit um, over time, it it's just adds something that's very volatile to a mix that, you know, you don't need to do that. Again, you know, sometimes we do, but not most commonly. The other thing about self-medication, it's important to think about alcohol. Alcohol is very available and it's one of the most used forms of self-medication because it does, for some people, mellow them out. And it's socially acceptable as a, a substance uh, for, for some people. And in some countries, children start to socially drink at a very um, early age and that's acceptable. So it's really important to think about alcohol use in children and think about whether uh, children, young people, and think about what that represents in terms of anxiety. Again, it's very addictive when you're using it to deal with anxiety. I always tell uh, my patients, if you're going to drink, drink happy. Sad drink or anxious drink is just a slippery slope. And we're going to talk about substances in a different episode, but that was really important to mention here. And it's important to mention that if you're at that point where you're really struggling, then think about medication because the side effects of medication are nothing compared to the side effects of struggling with school or struggling with alcohol or struggling with um, having significant losses. But again, medication will sort you out, might sort you out if it works, but most of the time it does. But if it does sort you out, it sorts you out for a certain amount of time. And like I said, it doesn't, doesn't really work for a lot of people. It works for some people. Some people need to try a couple of medications and some people just simply can't tolerate it. So you can try it and it's worth a try, to be honest, if you're struggling because the side effects compared to a lot of other things are nothing. And, uh, you know, 
this is not me being opinionated about medication and I'm not um, associated with any pharmaceutical company at all, but it's worth having that discussion out there. But again, people have their different views on medication and their different views on what treatments they choose to go with. And I'm telling you this because this is the podcast. If you're in my clinic, I'll probably tell you the same, but it doesn't really affect your treatment plan because we'll always start with psychotherapy anyway. And if we're offering you medication, if I'm offering you medication, I'm probably having this conversation with you um, telling you about the pros and cons and what I expect medication to do for you and how long, if it does work, how long I expect you to be on it. So today we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about anxiety, the different types of anxiety, and it was a bit of a just quick, quick, quick talk, but we tried to cover a lot of symptoms and we tried to cover a lot of disorders. We also talked about what it looks like in children and young people. We talked about how we assess it and we talked about how we treat it. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.